Thank you, Heather. Good afternoon, church. Good to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Pastor Dwight. Well, my name is Dwight. I serve as one of the pastors here at Renewal. And uh, especially if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Do hope that, as John mentioned, you get the opportunity to swing by at our welcoming table. Will there be some folks who'd love to just greet you more personally, um, help you get plugged in and answer any questions you might have. So during this season of Advent, as you probably are well aware, if you've been with us now, um, we're actually taking a break from our series through the Gospel of John, and instead, uh, each week we're going to explore one of the different titles or, or names of Jesus as listed and described in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which is this wonderful prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so he is referred to there as uh, we just heard, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so what we're going to do is each week we're going to unpack the meaning and significance of each of these names. And I pray that it would result in fueling a greater sense of awe and appreciation for who Christ is, as well as uh, create the fruit of, of, of joy and, and peace and hope uh, in our hearts in a much deeper way, uh, especially in this Advent season. Uh, Friday night, my family and I, funny little story here, uh, Friday night, my family and I were, uh, we planned to basically put our Christmas tree up, all right, and so we got the kids all excited, we're like, all right, tonight, we're going to put up the tree, yay, and we're going to decorate, and you can help us put on the ornaments, yay, and so everyone was really excited, and there we are, playing Christmas music, uh, and, and we even had our TV with a fireplace on it, and we're like getting in the mood, and so I go downstairs, I get the crates, I bring up all the crates with all the decorations, and the kids are opening it, and they're like, I'm going to put this up, I'm going to put that up, they're all getting excited, and then I'm like, wait a minute, uh, I think we're missing something. So I go down to the basement and I realize we had no tree <laughs> because if you remember, I shared this, we actually had our house renovated and the contractors like they're throwing all this stuff around and the tree got smashed uh, in so many words. And so I threw it out and I totally forgot. And so I had to go back upstairs and report to my poor children, uh, we don't have a Christmas tree. And they're all like, oh, and I was like, I promise, I promise. And we start calling Christmas tree shops and we're like, do you have any trees left? Um, but being a, being a preacher, I couldn't help but think of what an analogy that is uh, in spiritual terms. So here's what I'm getting at. Um, in our world, especially during this Christmas season, you go out into the stores, you go out into these places and it's like you see the words, hope, peace, you see commercials, oh, peace, joy, the joy of the season. But the fact of the matter is, just like a tree, or just like decorations without a tree, without Christ, there's nothing to hang hope on, peace on, joy on. There's nothing to hang those things on because Christ is the substance of those things. And apart from him, there really is no true, lasting peace, true, lasting hope, indestructible joy, as we know as Christians. And so all that to say, that whole little encounter reminded me of the fact that, again, in this season in particular, our hope is to look and deeply gaze upon Jesus because it's only as we look to him, who he is and what he's done, that you're going to experience these fruits in your life, experience genuine hope, peace, joy, 
right? The season might give you a little boost temporarily because of the music and decorations, but it won't last. It won't last. You need to be built on the substance who is Christ. Those things can only hang on Jesus and found in Jesus. So our prayer is that, again, each and every Sunday as we explore each of these titles of Jesus, it'll do just that, right? It'll, it'll drive more deeply the truth of who he is and result in these real tangible experiences of hope and joy and peace in your life. So last week, Pastor Justin unpacked wonderful counselor for us. And even though our Advent reading this afternoon was Prince of Peace, we're actually going to study uh, this afternoon the, the, the title or the, the phrase Mighty God. Mighty God. And I'd like to unpack this idea of Mighty God using the theme of a hero. All right? So our points are, are as follows. We'll look at the comfort of a hero and then our hero's victory and thirdly, our hero's heart. Okay, so again, the comfort of a hero, our hero's victory, and our hero's heart. All right, so before we hop into that, can I invite us to pray one more time? And let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being present with us now. And we just want to confess that as we live life in this world, especially with the way this world has been a very challenging place as of late, even though as Christians we are to be a people who walk by faith, not by sight. God, we confess that the things that we see in this world have a way of deeply affecting us. In fact, affecting us at times so deeply that instead of our faith informing what we see, sometimes what we see in an unhealthy way informs our faith, meaning as we see struggles and challenges and problems, it can cause us to doubt whether you are true and whether what you said is true. But Lord, as you desire, as you design, by your Spirit, open our eyes. By your Spirit, give us eyes of faith to see and to believe and to build our life on what you say upon your truth. So that indeed our faith in who you are and in your promises would inform how we approach the things we see in this world. And so to that end, God, would you bless the preaching of your word so that regardless of whatever season that we are in, each of my brothers and sisters here would be able to experience the very real hope, the very real peace, the very real joy that is found in you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So first of all, the comfort of a hero. So the prophet Isaiah uh, describes how a child would be born, not just to one set of parents, right? As it says on a birth certificate, on a birth certificate, if you look, it'll literally say so-and-so child born to, and then the names of the parents. Well, here in Isaiah, it says unto, not just Joseph and Mary, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, collectively. That us includes certainly the nation of Israel at the time, but way beyond that one nation, it includes, in fact, all the nations of the earth, the peoples of the world. And this child that Isaiah describes is not going to be some ordinary kid, but in fact, he is referred to as mighty God, which means simply what it sounds like. 
This is not an ordinary human child. This is God himself. God incarnate. God in the flesh. And that word or the adjective mighty in the Hebrew is gibor, which means strong, but there's also a specific connotation to it. In the Bible, gibor is used to describe a military hero, a conquering warrior. And more than just describing human beings in the Bible that way, God himself, that's what mighty God is, El Gabor. And what that's conveying is God himself is a divine warrior who fights for his people and delivers them from their enemies. Consider the verses immediately preceding the names of Jesus in Isaiah 9. Uh, in verses 4 and 5, this is what it says. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And then listen to this language of war. For every boot of the tramp, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's war language. Deuteronomy 4.34 describes the exodus in this way. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Well-known psalm here, Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, not just mighty, but mighty in battle. We get to the New Testament. How does the Apostle Paul describe the work of Jesus Christ in Colossians 2.15? Listen to the language. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Revelation 19, John is given a vision of the return of Jesus, his second coming, where he will not come at that time as he did in the first, meek and helpless. But how is he described? As a divine warrior coming on the clouds, mounted on a horse, sword from his mouth, and the armies of heaven following behind to bring final judgment upon the earth. Compared to the other names, compared to the other aspects of Jesus, this is probably the one we think about least, right? God is Father. Sure, we think about that a lot. Prince of Peace even. Mighty, uh, wonderful counselor, as Justin unpacked last week, right? Oh, he is my wisdom. But El Gibor, <laughs> divine warrior, rarely... If ever, my guess, rarely if ever do we think about Jesus in that sense. But I think it's important to. And let me try and explain why, practically speaking. Growing up in elementary school, I didn't really have to worry about bullies. Not because there weren't bullies. There were bullies. And not because of who I was, per se, in and of myself. But I didn't have to worry about bullies simply because... I was Ed Yu's little brother. That's my brother. I was Ed Yu's little brother. Not only was my brother six years older than me, even for his age, he's a big, strong guy, right? So growing up, I have this fond memory. We would have these church picnics, and one of the highlights of the church picnic was they would have a dad's tug-of-war contest. And I grew up at the time we were living in Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. And so it was New Jersey versus Pennsylvania. 
And so at the start of the tug of war, all the New Jersey dads would gather. And you know what they'd say? Where's Ed you? Go get Eddie! Someone go find Eddie! And there my brother would come bounding out of the forest or something. And he would always be the anchor, which is essentially the biggest, heaviest, strongest guy. Tie the rope around his waist. He's like 16 years old. He's the strongest guy on the field. And oftentimes New Jersey would win. That's why growing up, I didn't have to really worry about bullies. Everyone knew who my brother was. The intimidating bully types were intimidated by my brother. No one else, no one could mess with me. He messed with me plenty, right? But his mindset was, only I can mess with Dwight, <laughs> nobody else, because I was his brother. So as a result, during my elementary years at least, I walked through life, I got on the bus, I went about my day with a sense of security, <laughs> with a sense of comfort, knowing if anyone, if any problematic person who was more than I could handle dealt, tried to mess with me, my brother would be there. But as life goes on, schoolyard bullies don't, are not really an issue anymore. But as life goes on, there are other problems you face. Other problems that await us. Problems that are well beyond our own ability to overcome, well beyond your own ability to fix, well beyond your own resources, your own strength, well beyond your own ability to figure out with your intellect. In a sense, perhaps we, get to, we begin to be bullied in a different way. By fear, by anxiety, by a sense of powerlessness, powerlessness, sleepless nights. Perhaps for some of us over Thanksgiving, you were reminded of deeply broken relationships in your family. That you feel, no matter how winsome you try to be, reasonable you try to be, you are utterly helpless to fix. Problems and frustration at your workplace that are way beyond your ability as a single individual to do anything about. I know a lot of our teachers teaching in the city or uh, people part of the city, serving the city in some way, oftentimes share about how frustrating it is because the issues are systemic and huge, well beyond what any one teacher can fix or any one individual can fix. Zooming out of it, we look at the world we're in. It seems like every day there's another story of one or multiple people being shot to death. Whether in our city or somewhere else in this country. In spite of all the efforts to bring awareness and education, racism continues to rear its ugly head. We hear of a looming recession, economic downturn that you have no control over, I have no control over. I hear of job market prospects shrinking because of this uh, you know, anticipated recession. College graduates, you have nothing that you can do in your power to fix that. And then there's the concerns over global conflicts. Ukraine and Russia, will China invade Taiwan? North Korea launching nukes at will? I mean, it's like one thing after another. And when we take all of that in, 
we begin to experience this mix of both frustration, fear, helplessness, and we just wish someone could fix it. Right? Don't we even say that to ourselves? We look at our city, we look at the constant shootings. I wish someone would do something about this. What are our city leaders doing? I wish someone could fix this. Look at the school system. I wish someone would do something about this. In fact, I think part of why we are in the political climate in this nation that we are in is because for many people, politics is where their ultimate hopes lie. Idolatrously so. Even though no politician, no political system, in fact, can ever truly fix the world's problems. But deep inside, if we're honest, we all kind of long for a hero to come and fix things, to fight against, and to overcome the things that we know we can't fix. In fact, some people have keenly observed this connection between the state of our world and get this, the popularity of superhero movies. Todd Vanderwerf, he, he writes for Vox magazine, quote, superhero films are the dominant cinematic force right now. Right? They're all over. Black Panther, Black Adam, the Marvel series. Right? They make money hand over fist and their releases turn into genuine pop culture events, but we miss their point. We miss the why of them. These films are pop culture's most sustained response to tragedy. America has long turned to superheroes in troubled times, end quote. Talia Smart wrote an article entitled Superhero Popularity in Past and Present America. And she explains how uh, many of the popular superheroes throughout history emerged at a time that corresponds in an uncanny way with current events. She writes, quote, in the past, the reason for superhero popularity has been fairly clear, driven by external or internal crises and social climates. The costumed protectors have emerged to save our society, end quote. She goes on to note how there were surges in superhero popularity following the Great Depression, during World War II, during the Cold War, during the Civil Rights era, and more recent the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man franchise happened to be unexpectedly a wild success. It surprised even the people who made the movie. And she notes that perhaps the connection there is it was shortly after September 11th, where New York was literally in ashes and burning. And, and so perhaps there's something within people that the thought of someone who was able to save New York is a very appealing thing. Could it be... Could it be in ways that you and I are not even fully aware of, conscious of? These, where there's these movies where there's a hero who actually fixes what's wrong with the world, where evil is actually dealt with, where justice is truly served, where there's actually a resolution to the problems in the world, that for those two and a half hours... Could it be that it serves as a type of catharsis, a type of collective therapy session because of our deep-seated fears and our deep-seated frustrations? Well, the message of Christmas is that there is an actual hero. 
There is actually someone who has come to save our world. And it's the very God who made it. And the reason he came to rescue us from the problem that we, in fact, as humanity, created for ourselves when we rebelled against God, only he can fix it. Our divine warrior came to defeat and one day will fully eradicate the problem of sin and evil, which leads to all the brokenness we see constantly around us. He came to conquer the fruit of sin, which is death, as well as Satan himself. Friends, there is genuine hope. There is comfort to be found in the fact that someone is actually fixing things. Someone is actually working to make things right. And it is no one and nothing less, no one less than our mighty God. Perhaps at less of a macro, national, worldwide level. More personally, perhaps this afternoon, God is reminding some of us to bring your problems to Him. To bring the issues that feel overwhelming, the things that you're facing right now, that you are letting, in a sense, letting bully and dominate your thought life. Remember, you have an older brother, as he's referred to in the book of Hebrews. Christ, our older brother, who loves you, who is for you, who is fighting for you, and is certainly capable of handling every issue you can't. He offers you, come to me, all who are weary. Bring it to him. Leave the hard things in his hands so that you can find the comfort and peace he wants you to experience. He died for you to experience. Second, the hero's victory. Isaiah 9 foretells, defying all expectation, this mighty God, this mighty divine warrior. Here's the wonder of Christmas was born as a vulnerable human baby. And also, look at what it says about the way in which God wins. How does God secure his victory? Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. How will the Messiah, how will this divine warrior save people? How's he going to do it? How's he going to win? Well, it says it's going to be like the day of Midian. And what happened on the day of Midian? Well, it's a reference to when God delivers the Israelites from their oppression by the Midianites. And how does God save Israel from the Midianites? He gets this guy named Gideon, who in his own right is a coward. He's literally hiding when God calls out to him. And he keeps coming with, uh, up with every excuse in the book as to why he doesn't want to do this. And, and hence all the tests he makes requests of God. If you really want me to do this, I'm going to put this fleece this way and this fleece that way. It's basically he's a coward. He's afraid. And finally, as God assures him, he gets to the point where he says, okay, I'll do this. And so he assembles 32,000 troops to which God says that's too many. 
32,000 is too big. Whittle that down. Whittle that down. Whittle that down. All the way down to 300. And you know what? Not even 300 of the most skilled. It was in fact the opposite. 300 of the least skilled, most awkward, <laughs> incompetent guys. You're going to take that group. I'm going to deliver you from Midian. And you're not even going to take a sword in your hand. What you're going to do is you're going to grab some jars and torches and trumpets. <laughs> and then you're going to line up around the hill. And God had already prepared the way, you see. The Midianites were having dreams. They were already terrified and shaken in their hearts. And God says, at the time, blow the trumpet, smash the, the jars, and they're going to look up. And it, as, just as God said it would, it sent them into this frenzied panic. They're running in all kinds of directions, and the Israelites had a great victory that day. They were delivered from Midian. We see, foreshadowed here, just like the victory at Midian, the way that Jesus the Messiah, our divine warrior, secures victory is going to be in a very unconventional way. More specifically, Christ's victory is not going to be achieved by a show of force, but rather through becoming weak. Not by raising a spear, but by being willingly speared. How did he defeat sin? He defeats sin for us by becoming sin for us, by taking the curse and judgment we deserved upon himself. How does he defeat death? He defeats death by his own death. How does he overcome the grave? He overcomes the grave by going into the grave. How does he win? He wins by losing. He wins life for you and I by losing his own life. This is the theme. This is the pattern of Jesus' life and Jesus' victory. And for all who belong to him, it's your pattern for life and victory too. Perhaps earlier when I spoke about longing for a hero, maybe there's a conflicting feeling inside because on one hand you're like, yeah, I wish someone would just fix it. But at the same time, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with pride. We'd much rather be a hero than ask for a hero. If we're honest with ourselves, when people say, hey, do you need help with that? Often we're like, no, 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 I'm good, I got this. You're almost like embarrassed to ask for help. And when someone keeps offering the help, no, let me help you, let me help you, you feel patronized. What, do you think I'm not capable? You don't think I'm not smart enough? That's our pride speaking. More than even longing for a hero, sometimes we want to be that hero. We don't. Who likes feeling incapable? Nobody likes feeling weak, incapable. No one likes asking for help. And you know what? That's who we are. And you know what? Even the Apostle Paul could understand this. Because there was a point in his life when he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that made Paul feel weak. And he didn't like it. And this is why, what did Paul do? He kept praying, God, remove this from me. I don't like it. I don't want to feel weak. Could you just take this away from me? And what does God say to him? He tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul responds, well, therefore I will boast 
all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. You see, just like the counterintuitive, upside-down nature of Jesus' life and victory, there is a counterintuitive, upside-down nature to your life and to the victory God is achieving for you. Scott Sauls wrote a book. He's a pastor in our denomination and one of my favorite authors, actually. And in his most recent book, he articulates this so well. Listen, he says this. I have learned that the greatest strength comes through avenues of weakness. The greatest wisdom through the avenue of disorientation. The greatest joy through the avenue of sorrow. And the greatest worship through the avenue of doubt. Many of the world's greatest souls became their best selves not in spite of, but because of their distress. As grief expert Elizabeth Kubler-Ross famously noted, quote, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. End quote. He continues, Job lost ten children, his wife's affection, his livelihood, and his reputation in a single day. Moses stuttered. Jacob limped. Sarah was infertile. Tamar and Bathsheba were assaulted. David was betrayed by his son. Hosea's wife fell into prostitution, as did Rahab. Ruth was widowed in her youth. Mordecai was belittled and bullied. Jeremiah battled depression, as did Elijah. Gideon doubted God, as did Thomas. Mary and Joseph sought asylum from a reign of terror. Mary and Martha buried their brother. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Peter hated himself. And Jesus wept. As we read the Bible, it's important to see so many of the books, both Old Testament and New, were authored by someone who was enslaved, seeking asylum, imprisoned, facing persecution, or under another form of distress. And here's the tagline. Here's the key phrase. Sometimes the deepest, truest faith feels more like defeat than it does victory. Sometimes the deepest, truest faith feels more like defeat than it does victory. Friends, the hard things in your life, the painful things in your life, your weaknesses, your failures, your regrets, the things that you wish never happened, the things that you wish would just go away, it's those very things. Those are the avenues 
through which God is going to reveal his power in your life, his beauty in your life, his beauty through your life, and it's through those avenues he's actually achieving victory for you. That is the pattern. And I pray that you find a measure of comfort and encouragement today. Because trust me, I know, I get it. Sometimes the most beautiful things that God is doing in your life feels like defeat. But it's through those very things God is achieving something beautiful in you. The heart of the hero, finally. Zephaniah was a prophet who ministered during the time of Josiah, right? It's one of those minor prophet books of the Bible that the pages are likely stuck together because we don't turn there that often. But he was a prophet, and he calls the nation to repent, to turn wholeheartedly back to the Lord. And listen to this beautiful prophecy he shares in chapter 3, verse 17. It's, in fact, one of my favorite Old Testament passages. And our sister Heather read it for us. Let me read it again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What we see here is that this divine warrior who the enemies of God are terrified of, this divine warrior, this mighty God, has a very tender heart for you. He is mighty in love for you. There is another possible way to translate the phrase, he will quiet you with his love. In the Hebrew, just to put it as shortly as possible, there's two ways that could both make sense. Some translate it, as you see in your English Bible, most of you, if you're using NIV or ESV, it, it, it's saying quiet you. You're the one quieted by the love of God. But in the Hebrew, you can actually go the route of, and it'll still make uh, a grammatical, it, it would be right to translate it this way. God will be the one silent in love. So again, option A is we're the ones quieted in his love. Option B is God's the one quieted in his love. What does that even mean? Well, the picture is that of someone holding someone they care deeply about, right? Whether friend, family, child, loved one, just embracing them, and your heart is so welled up with love, contentment, happiness to just be with them, that like saying something in that moment would almost be inappropriate, right? Or, or words fall short. I've shared this in the past from the pulpit, but we have four children. We're a good-sized family, and sometimes it's hard to keep track of all our children. <laughs> and so um, our second son, Evan, one day we were at the beach and we lost him, right? I, I had asked our older son, because we were putting away all the, the sun tent and we're packing up. I said, Aiden, keep an eye on your brother. Okay, I got it. And he's like three years older, and he was a little boy. And, and so he's like, I got it. And so we're packing up and turn around, and Evan's gone. So I said, Aiden, where's Evan? Uh -huh. And in that moment, I look around, and there's hundreds of people on the beach, and panic sets in. 
And I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So I'm literally running around like, have you seen little boy? Have you seen him? No, no, no. And nobody in our section had seen him. So now I'm really freaking out because he's too little to swim and it's an ocean. So there I'm like with basically tears in my eyes, staring in the ocean and looking for my drowning son. And I am freaking out. And by the grace of God, a lifeguard runs over and says, we found your son. He's a couple booths over. And it was a long run. And I finally get to him, and there he is, swinging his legs in the lifeguard booth, smile on his face. Hey, Daddy! <laughs> and I grab him, and what do you think I did? Broke out into a long lecture as to why he needs to stay near mom. No, I didn't say a word. I just, and I just embraced him. Second time was in Korea, 2017, family trip. And my third son, Dylan, the whole family was coming down the apartment staircase, and then we all exited out the lobby, and for some odd reason, number three just kept going down into a dark basement. He was like two years old. And we're all outside waiting for the, the, the cab to pick us up. We're like, well, where's Dylan? And again, that same exact feeling, <laughs> panic sets in. Oh my goodness. And of course, I run back up the stairs. I'm not thinking anyone. And we're all upstairs, and we're like nowhere to be found. Terror fills my heart. Again, my tears are welling up. I'm like, I don't even know who to ask. I don't even speak this language fluently. And thank God, his uncle, my brother, he's like, here's a faint whisper in the dark basement. And there Dylan was. And we grab him. And again, just embrace him. The picture, the picture given here in Zechariah. Here's the crazy thing. Zephaniah. The crazy thing is this prophecy is conveying. That's how God feels about you. That's how God feels about you. Where he is so crazy about you that as it were, he embraces you in such a way where his love for you runs so deep, it's almost like, kind of like he's at a loss for words. The second picture is God loudly singing over his people. Loudly singing over his people. Back when Paula and I were, I believe, engaged, young love, I was so excited. I knew I was going to marry this woman. And at the time, uh, I used to be a worship leader. Music ministry was a big part of my life, and it's not like I'm some professional. I was musical enough to lead church music, and so, and, and so I just had this idea. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to make her an album. And it was like four songs. So album might be a stretch, but I like composed it. I wrote it. And that's what young love does when you're moderately musical. <laughs> was, I just wanted to express my love for her. The picture here is that God is crazy about you. And in a weird way, sometimes that love quiets the heart of God, and sometimes he breaks forth in loud song. It's trying to convey the depth of God's love for you, which you can be assured of. Because even in this passage, if you read it, Zephaniah, verse 15 says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. You see, for the Christian, as Paul also writes, there's no, no, condemn left, no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus because in Christ, he took the condemnation for us. 
The father turned his face away from Jesus so that the father would turn towards you with a loving embrace and singing over you with delight. And friends, regardless of how you choose to translate that verse, you see, the end result is the same. Because even if it's God quieted by his deep, deep love for you, the end result is if you know God loves you that much, it does quiet your soul. When all the storms in life are raging, if you know, but God loves me like that, it has a way of just calming you. And let's just be honest. You know, all this talk of divine warrior, hero, mighty to save, nothing's too hard for him. That very same truth is hard to accept when you're going through really hard things. Why? Because you know if God wanted, he could step in and intervene right now and stop all this. And sometimes he doesn't answer that prayer. God, I don't want to go through this. God, why did I have to go through this? God, I'm getting pummeled right now. And older brother, you're not showing up. That's hard. I've been there. But you see, what continues to comfort us is realizing there's a lot of things you're not going to understand in this life. There's a lot of things you're not going to make sense of, of why certain prayers get answered and some don't. There's a lot of whys we're not going to get answered until the other side of eternity. But here's what you can absolutely 100% be sure of. It's not because he doesn't love you and it's not because he doesn't care. Because when we look at the cross, Christ, too, was pummeled. And he had the power to stop it, and he didn't. He could have called legions of angels at every moment to stop it, and he didn't. Why? Because he knew it was the only way he could have you and embrace you. And if you know he loves you like that, even when those why questions are left hanging, you're your soul can still be quieted and comforted knowing, well, the one thing I know is, even though I don't understand this, I know he loves me like that. I know he loves me to the point where he is quieted in his love and he sings over me with joy. And I pray that this afternoon, that would bring you a measure of comfort and peace. Let's pray.